Howdy, and welcome to Wise About Texas, the award-winning Texas history podcast. I'm your host, Ken Wise, and I want to thank you for tuning in today for some Texas history. This is part two of a two-part episode on the infamous gangsters Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow. In part one, we covered several of their crimes, their murders, a couple of their gang members, and we ended with the violent prison break they orchestrated at the East Ham Prison Farm in East Texas. To remind everyone a little bit about that, Bonnie and Clyde staged a prison break that freed inmates Raymond Hamilton, Joe Palmer, Henry Methvin, and Hilton Bybee. They killed one guard and wounded another. The head of the Texas prison system at the time was Lee Simmons, and he was mad. So he devised a plan. With the cooperation of Governor Ma Ferguson, he would create the position of special investigator for the Texas prison system. He would fill this position with the best manhunter he could think of. It had to be somebody who had a proven record as a tracker and a detective. It had to be someone with the intelligence to anticipate the Barrow Gang's next move. And it had to be someone with the ability to do what he knew and everyone knew would have to be done when they finally caught Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie and Clyde had proven over and over that they were willing to shoot first. The man Simmons chose had to shoot faster. He had to be the toughest, deadliest man in the gunfight that was sure to come. And Lee Simmons knew just who to call. Frank Hamer was born on March 17, 1884, in Fairview, Texas. He grew up on a ranch in San Saba County. He cowboyed on various ranches in West Texas and joined the Texas Rangers in 1906. He was in and out of the Rangers, working on the border and other hot spots at the time. Now, the, t- the Texas border in the early 1900s, as we've talked about before on this podcast, was a very violent and uncertain place. The line between law enforcement operations and military operations was often blurred as the Mexican Revolution raged across the border. So Frank Hamer had to be tough. He resigned from the Texas Rangers finally in 1925 in protest over the election of Governor Maul Ferguson. Governor Maul Ferguson's husband, Jim Ferguson, or Paul, was probably the most corrupt governor in Texas history, and he was finally impeached. Well, he decided he'd overcome that impeachment by running his wife, Ma, for governor, promising two governors for the price of one. One of the slogans that their supporters would use was, me for Ma, and I don't have a darn thing against Pa. But two governors for the price of one is my favorite. Ma Ferguson got in and basically disbanded the Rangers. She fired all the people, all the good rangers, and replaced them with political hacks and others that came to be derisively referred to as the Ferguson Rangers. Hamer wasn't willing to be a part of that. Hamer's reputation was already well built. One newspaper at the time called Frank Hamer, quote, one of the most spectacular peace officers in Texas, close quote. Hamer had fought bandits on the border. He'd fought lynch mobs around the state of Texas. He took on the Ku Klux Klan, He was good with a gun, he had a ton of common sense and ability, and was probably one of the more serious men around. 
if anyone could ever track down and get Bonnie and Clyde, Lee Simmons knew Frank Hamer could do it. So Simmons went to the governors, and I use that plural intentionally, and they approved the hiring of Frank Hamer. Simmons went back to Hamer and promised to back him 100% for as long as it took if he'd take the assignment. Well, Hamer took the assignment. It was clear to everyone that Bonnie and Clyde were not going to be taken alive. Clyde had said as much publicly. Hamer, of course, knew it too. The most important part to Frank Hamer of this whole plan was secrecy. Hamer wouldn't even meet with Lee Simmons in Huntsville, the headquarters of the prison system, because he knew that uh, he'd be recognized there and that his cover would be blown. Simmons and Hamer would meet in Dallas or in Austin, somewhere where the nature of his assignment wasn't likely to become public. Hamer began studying the patterns that Bonnie and Clyde would take. You know, there were a, a thousand or so men from the FBI and every law enforcement agency in any place Bonnie and Clyde had been looking for Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, Bonnie and Clyde, therefore, were on the guard at all times, and mo- more importantly than that, they were on the move at all times. So Hamer began studying these movements, and what he figured out was Bonnie and Clyde would basically make a loop. They'd go from Dallas to Missouri to Louisiana and back to Dallas. Now, they certainly went other places. They'd deviate from that loop from time to time. They'd go up to Indiana. They committed some crimes in Minnesota. Maybe they'd go to New Mexico, but they'd always return to the same basic pattern. Hamer also needed to learn more about Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow as people, and for this, he enlisted the help of Dallas County Sheriff Smoot Schmid. Now that, I gotta tell you, is one of the all-time great sheriff names, Smoot Schmid. Uh, Hamer went up there and met with the Dallas sheriff, and he learned everything that Dallas had on their hometown criminals. He learned about their families. He learned what they ate. He learned what they drank. He learned what they wore. Schmidt actually loaned Deputy Bob, Bob Alcorn to Frank to help him out. Alcorn knew Bonnie and Clyde personally. He had arrested Clyde in the past, and he had been a customer at the cafe where Bonnie Parker was a waitress. And there's even some writing out there that Alcorn had a little thing for Bonnie. I, I have my doubts about that, but he knew him. In February 1934, Bonnie and Clyde robbed the bank in Lancaster, Texas, and they got away with $4,000, which was a pretty big haul. Well, that started a dispute within the gang. And let me mention something about this gang, because one of the themes I want you to catch from this episode is that Bonnie and Clyde were not some romantic Robin Hood heroes. They certainly robbed, but they never gave anything to the poor. They couldn't care less about the poor. They cared only about themselves. They stole a bunch of this money. Well, here's another thing that will give you the flavor of the gang. Uh, If you look in the FBI files, you find out that Bonnie had an STD, and she gave it to every member of the Barrow gang. So so that tells you a little bit about what you're dealing with. You can forget uh, any notion you have as Bonnie is some sweet little thing. Anyway, uh, the gang got a little tense over the money. Clyde thought that Hamilton was trying to take more than his fair share. There was also tension over Bonnie, and there's some talk that Ray Hamilton, one of the gang members, was trying to talk Bonnie into leaving Clyde. Well, you can imagine that didn't sit well with Clyde, so from that day on, Clyde was hunting Ray Hamilton. 
Bonnie and Clyde uh, ended up going to Missouri. Ray Hamilton continued to rob banks in Texas. And uh, Clyde knew that after Ray robbed a bank, he'd hide out near Grapevine. So word had gotten out that Hamilton had pulled a bank job in West Texas, not West Texas, West, Texas. So Clyde headed for Grapevine to try and find Ray Hamilton. On April 1st, 1934, which was Easter Sunday, 1934, Bonnie and Clyde were parked on a country dirt road off of Highway 114 near the farm of William Schieffer. Now this uh, is about where the town of South Lake is now. So they're parked on this dirt road in Easter and it was there they would commit the murder that, at least in my mind, sort of defines Bonnie and Clyde. About 3.30 in the afternoon, two Texas Highway Patrol officers on motorcycle patrol were on Highway 114. One was 26-year-old E.B. Wheeler. The other was 22-year-old Holloway Murphy, who was on his first day on the job as a Texas Highway Patrolman. The officers noticed a black car parked up a dirt road off the highway, so they rode over to check it out. Well, the farmer, Schieffer, was outside. At one point that afternoon, he had been as close to 30 feet to the young couple that he would later find out was Bonnie and Clyde. He just thought they were a young couple out for an Easter picnic. But as he and his daughters, who were also outside, watched, Officers Murphy and Wheeler stopped their motorcycles and walked toward the car. They didn't get very far. Shotgun blasts rang out. Wheeler was killed almost instantly. Murphy fell on his side, still alive. As the three watched, Bonnie Parker walked up to Murphy, rolled him onto his back with her shoe, and fired into his head at point-blank range. Other statements have both Bonnie and Clyde shooting the dying man. Either way, they did it. And there were actually two more witnesses to that shooting. Now, they were about 100 yards away, but they saw the kill shot on Murphy. There was no bank robbery. There was no frantic getaway from a car theft. There was nothing like that. There was just Bonnie and Clyde killing two police officers in cold blood. One of Clyde's gang members, Henry Methvin, was in the back seat of Bonnie and Clyde's car. He was asleep when Bonnie and Clyde killed the patrolman, awakening to the sound of the guns. So the gang took off and headed for Oklahoma. The killing of the two Texas Highway Patrolmen caused Lewis Ferris, who was chief of the Highway Patrol, to activate all his officers, along with the Dallas Police Department and the FBI, in an attempt to track down Bonnie and Clyde. On April 6th, Bonnie and Clyde were near Commerce, Oklahoma. A concerned citizen reported two men and a woman parked in a black Ford with yellow wheels, which is the description of the gang's most recent stolen vehicle. The police chief, Percy Boyd, and a constable, Cal Campbell, went to check out this report. As they approached the car, it started to back up, and it ended up in a muddy ditch trying to get away. The officers saw the people in the car were armed, and the officers drew their guns. At that point, Bonnie opened up with a shotgun. Clyde and Henry Methvin 
Both jumped out of the car with Browning automatic rifles and cut loose. It was carnage. Campbell was killed instantly. Boyd tried to surrender. The gang actually kidnapped him, the police chief Boyd, and took off. They headed to Kansas with Clyde yelling at Bonnie while they were in the car that she had shot too soon. Chief Boyd later described Clyde saying this, quote, He acted like he owned the earth. He thinks quite a bit of himself. Close quote. Well, Hamer was on him. Clyde had traded the stolen Ford for a stolen Pontiac in Kansas. In the meantime, Lewis Ferris, the highway patrol chief, wanted a highwayman to join the chase. Frank Hamer said fine and asked for his good friend and former Texas Ranger colleague, Benjamin Manny Galt. Manny Galt was born in Travis County. He had worked as an undercover officer during Prohibition, and then he joined the Texas Rangers. Galt and Hamer had served as Rangers together. They were also neighbors in Austin, and they were the closest of friends. Hamer knew Galt to be a steady man and a good investigator. Galt was unflappable. He was also good with the gun, and he had the same common sense that characterized Frank Hamer. So together, Hamer and Galt hit the trail. They had the assistance of the Dallas deputies Alcorn and a young officer named Ted Hinton. Alcorn, as I had mentioned, had known Bonnie and Clyde, and they, the group decided to focus on Henry Methven's family, who lived in the backwoods of northern Louisiana in Bienville Parish. The Methvens moved around frequently in the area, and it made them hard to track down. But the commerce killings had changed things. Now we knew, the public knew, that Henry Methven was running around with Bonnie and Clyde. So in Louisiana, folks started talking. The sheriff of Bienville Parish, Henderson Jordan, got a tip that the Methvens were living in nearby, nearby Ashland, Louisiana, and appeared to suddenly have come into some money. So on April 13th, an FBI agent got a tip that Bonnie and Clyde were actually hiding out with the Methvens in the woods. So the Louisiana authorities started to hatch a plan to get Bonnie and Clyde. But unfortunately, the sheriff of a neighboring parish got some loose lips and botched a planned raid that would have captured the outlaws, hopefully, causing, of course, Bonnie and Clyde to hit the road. But Hamer knew that eventually they'd return. And when they did, Hamer would make sure that he was in charge. Well, after that botched raid... Ivy Methvin, Henry Methvin's father, wanted to talk. So Sheriff Jordan, Henderson Jordan, and one of his deputies, Prentice Oakley, met Ivy Methvin out in the woods. Methvin was scared. He knew he had taken money from Clyde Barrow. That money, no doubt, had been stolen, and he knew he might be prosecuted. He also knew that they were closing, that law enforcement was closing in on the gang, and his son Henry would probably be killed along with Bonnie and Clyde, if, the, if it went down and he was there. So Hamer arranged, after some negotiations, for Henry Methvin, the gang member, to get a pardon from the Texas governor, if he would cooperate, and to use the parlance of the day, put Bonnie and Clyde on the spot. Well, here it gets interesting. Hamer still wanted to keep his involvement a secret. So he had his brother... His brother, Frank Hamer's brother, Estelle Hamer, was, ironically enough, the senior captain of the Texas Rangers under Governor Ferguson. 
So Frank got a still to travel to Louisiana and meet with the authorities and the person who was serving as the middleman between the Methvins and the Sheriff's Department, a guy named John Joyner. Well, when he got there, he found out that Henry Methvin had indeed visited his parents and Bonnie and Clyde were with him. For some reason, during that visit, Bonnie and Clyde were getting increasingly agitated and Methvin was, Methvin was getting nervous. He wanted out and away from Bonnie and Clyde. So once the pardon was in place, a meeting was arranged with Frank Hamer, Bob Alcorn, Sheriff Henderson Jordan, and Ivy Methvin. The plan was that Ivy Methvin would notify Sheriff Jordan and the FBI when Bonnie and Clyde were returning to Louisiana. So Hamer and Alcorn went back to Texas. Hamer continued chasing down leads on Bonnie and Clyde. He found out they had robbed another bank on May 3rd, and he continued to wait. Finally, on May 9th, he got the call he was waiting for. Bonnie and Clyde had visited the Methvins. So Frank Hamer, Manny Galt, Dallas officers Bob Alcorn and Ted Hinton immediately went to Shreveport to meet with Henderson Jordan. The posse set up in a hotel until Bonnie and Clyde's movements could be nailed down. In the meantime, Ivy Methvin, remember I said he moved around a lot, had moved to a house owned by a man named Cole. Now, Cole didn't give him permission to do this. He was just squatting. He was squatting in that house maybe because it only had one way in and one way out. And Bonnie and Clyde actually made several visits to the Methvins in the ensuing days. Hamer and Galt were staying in Shreveport, but during this time, as time passed, Alcorn and Hinton had to go back to Dallas. Hamer himself actually traveled to this house several times to stake it out. In Hamer's one interview about his chase of Bonnie and Clyde, he mentioned that he might have gotten them on his own, but for what he described as accidents that occasionally happen when you're trying to execute a law enforcement operation, and he left it at that. Finally, after talking about it, Hamer and Sheriff Jordan decided that a raid on the house would likely end up with innocent victims, so they devised another plan, and that was they were going to take Bonnie and Clyde on the road. So they found a good spot on a road between Gibsland, Louisiana, and Sales, Louisiana, S-A-I-L-E-S, Sales, Louisiana. Sheriff Jordan noted in a recollection that the highway department had cut part of this road through a small hill. The dirt they had excavated had been piled up to the side and vegetation had grown over it, and that would, have made, that would make an excellent vantage point and an excellent spot to set up on Bonnie and Clyde. They could set up in the brush, and they could have a great view of the road, both north and south. Now all they needed was Bonnie and Clyde to make another visit. On May 22nd, Sheriff Henderson Jordan called Frank Hamer and said this, quote, Come to Arcadia at once. Get your other men if you can. The day before, Bonnie and Klein had gone on a picnic with the Methvins at a lake nearby. Ivy Methvin told his son to get loose from Bonnie and Clyde. Henry did that, and Bonnie and Clyde started driving around trying to figure out where he was. They thought he might have gone home, but Ivy said he hadn't seen him. So Clyde told Ivy Methvin that Bonnie and Clyde would go to Bossier Parish because he might have gone there 
and if he couldn't find him, he'd come back to the house where Ivy was squatting. Sheriff Jordan got the posse together, and they set up at the ambush site about 3 in the morning on May 23rd. Sheriff Jordan, nervous that Ivy Methvin was going to chicken out, told him to park his truck in the road and take off a tire as if he had a flat tire so maybe Clyde would stop and help him. Hamer recollects that he positioned himself on the end of the line of men, Manny Galt next to him, then Henderson Jordan, Bob Alcorn, Louisiana Deputy Prentice Oakley, and Dallas Officer Ted Hinton. Hamer recalled that he, Galt, and Jordan were to cover the front seat of the car. Oakley and Alcorn would cover the back seat in case there was anyone with Bonnie and Clyde, and Hinton, with a fully automatic Browning automatic rifle, would take out the car's engine if the car tried to run the ambush. All they had to do was wait. And wait they did. And all the guns they had were not helping against the mosquitoes. They also for- forgot one important thing, and that was food. So hunger was setting in. When the sun came up, Methvin set up his truck and took the tire off, which resulted in several friendly travelers stopping and offering assistance. Methvin was clearly getting nervous, and Sheriff Jordan recalled him trying to call off the operation every, ha- every time he had to reject some nice passing motorist's offer of help. Well, when a car approached from the north, Alcorn and Hinton would try to determine whether it was Bonnie and Clyde. And several cars came, but none were Bonnie and Clyde, and the group was getting frustrated. Then, about 9.15 in the morning, Hamer heard a noise he described as a car coming from the north, quote, singing like a sewing machine, close quote. A thousand yards away, a light tan Ford came into view the same kind of car they knew Bonnie and Clyde were driving. The car slowed near Ivy Methvin, and Bob Alcorn got a good view. He said, it's Barrow. The Parker woman's with him. And as with every seemingly perfect situation, something's got to go awry. This time it was a loaded logging truck approaching from the other direction. Clyde stopped his car between the posse and Ivy Methvin. The most wanted outlaws in Texas, Louisiana, Missouri, and several other states were 50 feet away from the posse. Ivy and Clyde spoke. Ivy asked Bonnie, who was holding a sandwich in the front seat, if she had a drink for him. Clyde started to pull forward to let the logging truck by. Several posse members began to yell for the outlaws to stop when Prentice Oakley opened fire. Hamer recalls Clyde's hand on an automatic rifle in his lap and Bonnie raising a pistol. Other officers recalled Clyde with a shotgun and Bonnie with a pistol. It didn't matter. All hell broke loose. The posse fired into the windshield, into the doors, into the windows. Ted Hinton forgot about the engine. He just emptied his BAR into the front seat, which stitched Bonnie up her left side with the .30-06 bullets. One officer recalled Bonnie screaming like a panther. The six officers let loose from six different points. The noise was deafening. Seconds later, two of the most wanted outlaws in Texas history were dead. We can't be 100% sure of exactly the order of events before the shooting started in general. All we know for sure is it started. Frank Hamer gave the one interview I mentioned earlier to Walter Prescott Webb, a famous historian of the Texas Rangers, 
And Hamer said that someone, he doesn't say who, but one could assume he meant himself, gave the command to, quote, stick him up, close quote. Sheriff Henderson Jordan claimed that it was he who jumped up and yelled, quote, put him up, Clyde, you're covered, close quote. Yet another account has Bob Alcorn yelling halt. That same account, by the way, and I tend to think this is probably truer than not, says that the yelling and the shooting began about the same time. Whatever exactly happened in that split second, the fact is that Bonnie and Clyde weren't going to be taken alive, and they weren't. Clyde's foot slipped off the clutch of the car, and the car started to roll forward. Bob Alcorn followed it down the road, shooting all the way, until the car rolled slowly into the roadside ditch. And that was the end of Bonnie and Clyde. In their car was an awesome array of weaponry. Several pistols, several shotguns, and several Browning automatic rifles. Thousands of rounds of ammunition. Clyde had a few hundred dollars cash and a saxophone, of all things. There was also a stash of license plates to disguise their stolen cars. When it was all over, Bonnie had been shot over 40 times, Clyde over 17. The door had protected him to some degree. There were 167 rounds, we think, fired into that car. And word traveled fast. In a short time, there were 200 cars lining that lonely country road as souvenir hunters tried to steal what they could. A tow truck was called out to haul the car with Bonnie and Clyde's bodies in it to Arcadia, Louisiana. It was followed by 150 or so cars in some sort of morbid parade. A reporter asked Frank Hamer for a statement, and he said this, quote, We just shot the devil out of them, that's all. Close quote. The sheriff locked up the death car in the yard of the jail. Prison system chief Lee Simmons told Hamer to divide up the outlaws' guns amongst the, posses as su- amongst the posse members as souvenirs, which he did. The crowds descended on Arcadia, trying to catch a glimpse of the bodies. As the car was towed through town, people just sickeningly grabbed at the bodies. They were trying to get a bauble, a lock of hair, a piece of jewelry, something from Bonnie and Clyde. Someone was even caught trying to cut off Clyde's trigger finger. The outlaws were autopsied and embalmed in Arcadia. Embalming them was not easy with all the holes they had in them. Bonnie and Clyde's bodies were taken back to Dallas for burial. They weren't buried together. Bonnie's mother wouldn't allow it. Clyde was taken to the Sparksman Holtz brand funeral home in Dallas, and over 20,000 people lined up to get a glimpse of the famous killer. Bonnie was taken to the McKamey Campbell funeral home, and over 15,000 tried to see her. Celebrities even in death. Let me give you a couple of comments on Bonnie and Clyde. And I normally don't make these kind of comments in these episodes, but I want to make a couple. There's a lot of misconceptions out there. There's, there's several books on Bonnie and Clyde and some of them I got to tell you are just flat wrong and bad history. Email me. I'm not going to say it in the episode, but email me at host at wiseabouttexas.com. If you want my personal opinions, the FBI files on Bonnie and Clyde are online. You can see them for yourself. You can read a lot of interesting things there. One one thing that I noticed about Bonnie and Clyde, their fame, if you go through the old newspapers, was mostly regional. Don John Dillinger was operating at this time. He was public enemy number one. He was a big-time national criminal, not Bonnie and Clyde. They were small-time thugs. They were murderers, and they were just small-time robbers. They didn't rob many banks. They mostly robbed mom-and-pop stores, a gas station, something like that. They weren't brilliant criminal masterminds. They were just a pair of murderers. Uh, 
on the run from the law. They killed innocent citizens. They killed law enforcement officers. They didn't have to. They wanted to. And don't listen to any nonsense about Bonnie being some innocent girl who never fired a gun. That's a myth that Bonnie's mother started right after their deaths. And she sold it to her share of people. Bonnie, But Bonnie did plenty of shooting and killing. There are eyewitnesses, multiple eyewitnesses that confirm it. A grand jury confirmed it and indicted Bonnie and Clyde both for the Grapevine murders. And if they'd have been able to be tried for those cases, for those murders, I'm sure the jury would have no doubt confirmed it. Bonnie and Clyde weren't mythical heroes. They were murderers. And they finally reaped what they had sown. Now we come to the part of the episode I call Getting There, where I tell you to see some of the places I talked about in the episode. And there's a ton of places you could see that are connected with Bonnie and Clyde, but let's start with some obvious ones. Bonnie Parker is buried in Crown Hill Memorial Park Cemetery in Dallas, Texas. Clyde Barrow is buried in Western Heights Cemetery in Dallas. There's a website you can go to called findagrave.com, and you can see exactly where those cemeteries are, and you can visit those graves. The site where the posse finally brought down Bonnie and Clyde is on Highway 154 between Gibsland, G-I-B-S-L-A-N-D, Louisiana, and Sales, Louisiana, S-A-I-L-E-S. And if you go on Google Maps and Google Gibsland, Louisiana, go south, find Highway 154, and there is a, a marker on Google Maps that says Bonnie and Clyde Memorial Stone. And if you click on that, you'll see some Street View pictures. It's There's a marker where the ambush occurred. And it's on that highway, so it's really pretty easy to find. And you can travel there and stand on the spot where Frank Hamer and the rest of the men brought down Bonnie and Clyde. Something else that's interesting, and this is not exactly getting somewhere, but Ted Hinton, the Dallas officer, he had a 16-millimeter movie camera at the ambush. And he filmed, took films of the aftermath immediately after it happened. And you can get on YouTube And you can see those old films that he took. You can see Bonnie Parker slumped over in the car. Now, when the eyewitness accounts are that she'd slumped forward like she was going to pick something up off the floor. But when they ID'd the bodies, they probably moved her a little bit. But uh, you can see those movies on YouTube. The Texas Ranger Museum in Waco, Texas, Texas Ranger Hall of Fame and Museum, has a Frank Hamer and Bonnie and Clyde exhibit where you can go see some of the weapons that belong to Frank Hamer and belong to Bonnie and Clyde. The, uh, if you go to Dallas, the funeral home where Clyde was taken is at 2101 Ross Avenue. It is now the headquarters of the Dallas Bar Association. It's been beautifully preserved, and that's where Clyde was taken when his body was brought back to Dallas. And here's where I think you ought to go and pay respects, if you want to, for this whole story. Austin Memorial Park Cemetery. It's on Hancock Drive near Mopac in Austin. In that cemetery rest two of the greatest Texas Rangers ever. The men who brought down Bonnie and Clyde, Frank Hamer and Manny Galt. Neighbors in life and neighbors in death. They're buried near each other in Austin's Memorial Park Cemetery. They were heroes to Texas and heroes to the rest of America when they track down those murderers. Go visit their graves and remember what a great job they did for Texas. Well, that wraps it up for another episode of Lies About Texas. 
Thank you very much for listening today. I appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes and share the show with a friend. We're on uh, social media. We've got a Wise About Texas Facebook page. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Wise About Texas. And I want to tell you about a bonus episode that's in the works. The reason I published these Bonnie and Clyde episodes during this time was Netflix has just released a movie called The Highwaymen, written by John Fusco, directed by John Lee Hancock. This movie tells the story of the chase from Bonnie and Clyde from the perspective of Frank Hamer and Manny Galt. They're the two main characters. Frank Hamer's played by Kevin Costner, Manny Galt played by Woody Harrelson. And it's a great movie. It's a lot of fun to watch. It was very well done. They filmed the ambush scene uh, at the actual spot that it happened. And uh, I'm going to interview Dr. Jody Ginn, who was a consulting historian for Netflix on that movie. And we're going to talk a little bit about Bonnie and Clyde in the movies, the myth, the legends, a little bit about how historical movies are made. And it should be an interesting episode. I'm going to release it uh, as a bonus. So stay tuned for that. Thanks again for tuning in to Wise About Texas today. Go out and do something for Texas today. And until next time, God bless Texas, and we'll see you down the road.